Well, good afternoon, everyone. This is County Supervisor Joe Simidian. Thank you for joining us this afternoon. And uh, as uh, some of you who have participated in the call previously know, uh, this is a telephone town hall designed to uh, share some information about where things stand here in Santa Clara County uh, with respect to uh, the coronavirus, COVID-19, and uh, also uh, where we are headed. Uh, but perhaps most importantly, we also want to make sure we have time today to take your questions. Uh, our format has been adjusted slightly to allow even more time for questions, although we still won't have time to get to everyone's questions uh, if the past is any guide. Again, I'm County Supervisor Joe Simidian. I represent the 5th Supervisorial District here in Santa Clara County, which is uh, all or part of eight different cities in the north and northwest portion, uh, North County and West Valley portions of our county. We're also reaching out to uh, other folks uh, here in the county who uh, I may have represented previously uh, during my tenure in the California State Senate and State Assembly. Want to make sure that everyone has access to the information that we're sharing today. So again, that's who I am. Uh, perhaps more importantly, we have uh, two wonderful guests today. Uh, our uh, first guest will be Dr. Jennifer Tong, uh, and Dr. Tong is the uh, Associate Chief Medical Officer at our Santa Clara Valley Medical Center, uh, and uh, it's a title that probably doesn't mean much to most of our listeners, but perhaps most important for today's conversation, she's also our Health System Preparedness Officer at our Emergency Operations Center for the uh, coronavirus. In plain English, what that means is uh, that she has a leadership responsibility in making sure that our health system is prepared, both our hospitals and our clinics, that our health system is prepared to address uh, whatever demand uh, we see from uh, the coronavirus, COVID-19. Uh, I know many of you have been aware of the concern early on about making sure that we flattened the curve so that our system was not overwhelmed and then uh, providing time to ramp up the capacity of the system, and Dr. Tong has been at the center of that effort. She first joined the county back in uh, 2005, uh, and uh, she was uh, our hospital inpatient informatics person. And uh, <laughs> here again, uh, to help uh, the, clarify some of the language, uh, that's a, a technical jargon for uh, let's make sure that we share information in a way that allows for uh, the best possible treatment, uh, so that we can be smarter about the way we provide health care. Uh, that has been her passion now for uh, much of her career. Uh, she's also spent some time in the uh, health and hospital system over in Contra Costa County, and um, she came to us back in 2005 after being um, granted her MD from the University of Chicago School of Medicine and uh, a residency at Stanford University School of Medicine. So, Dr. Tong, we thank you for being with us today. We will also be joined by uh, Mr. Tony Lepresti, and Mr. Lepresti is uh, one of our assistant county councils, uh, one of half dozen folks at the top of our legal team here at the county. Uh, we have a legal team for a county of probably 200 folks, maybe 100 attorneys. Uh, Mr. Lepresti is the assistant county council, and uh, while he uh, works uh, on a range of topics here in the county, advising uh, the Board of Supervisors and uh, various sections of the county, um, perhaps most important for this call. Uh, he has also been tasked during this coronavirus crisis uh, to our EOC, our Emergency Operations Center, where he is responsible for answering an awful lot of the questions about what does this mean, what does that mean, can I do this, can I do that, 
and um, really a very helpful source of clarifying information during what has been uh, inconsistent uh, time. So thank you for that. And um, I should tell you that uh, Mr. Lepresti has a really a strong background in uh, environmental labor and employment law before he came to our county. I was also a clerk uh, for the U.S. Court of Appeals, worked in the nonprofit sector as well as in the uh, private practice. So really a wonderful depth and breadth of experience and uh, doing a very nice job uh, of explaining to folks what these various orders from various levels of government do and don't mean. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the call's purpose today is to discuss the impact of COVID-19 on our county and uh, the county's response so far, and perhaps most importantly, uh, what uh, you all can do uh, to keep yourself safe. Um, we are <coughs> delighted that the uh, town hall today will allow for an extended period for uh, questions by listeners and participants. So if you do have a question during the course of the call, just press star three. Again, just press star three at any time during the call, and that will put you in the queue for uh, questions. We'll have uh, someone uh, take your questions, screen the questions, and try and hand them off to me. Uh, but again, want to make sure that you know if you have a question, you simply have to press star three at any time uh, during the call. And of course, a lot of these uh, issues can uh, be uh, clarified by uh, heading towards the county's public health department website. Uh, just search on Santa Clara County and coronavirus and you'll find your way. Uh, and um, also on my own website uh, or on my own Facebook page. So uh, lots of information out there. And again, uh, we're gonna get started here in just a moment, but wanna make sure you know that if you have questions, um, you can get them uh, in the queue by pressing star three at any time. All right, let's go to Dr. Tong. Uh, uh, Dr. Jennifer Tong, thanks so much for being with us today. As I mentioned, you are the uh, Associate Chief Medical Officer at our Santa Clara Valley Medical Center. But uh, for today's call, uh, perhaps equally if not more important, uh, you are the health system preparedness uh, person in our system. We want to thank you for being here. As I mentioned, you've spent some time at Contra Costa County as well, so you uh, know your way around the whole Bay Area. MD from University of Chicago, residency at Stanford, and uh, welcome, Dr. Tom. Thank you very much. That was thank an excellent you. introduction. <laughs> well, uh, I think it's helpful for folks to know who they're hearing from, and I'm going to ask you to speak right up. But I, I, I want to start with a question that I have gotten a lot in uh, the last 48 hours, which is, um, and in the last week indeed, which was that Santa Clara County was placed on uh, the governor's uh, so-called watch list, monitoring list, uh, even though other counties had been experiencing higher numbers of reported cases, and, uh, had uh, frankly been uh, uh, a little more wide open than our county, certainly. So why don't I just ask you to set the stage for the conversation today by saying, all right, where have we been? Where are we? And to the extent you think you can tell, where are we headed? Because uh, I'm getting a lot of questions from folks who want to know how long is this going to go on? What's it going to look like in the coming months? Sure thing. So I will do my very best to speak as loudly as possible. And I apologize if I have to clear my voice a few times. It seems as progressively since uh, February, my voice has gotten softer and softer from pure fatigue, I believe. So I will, I'll do my very best to speak up here. Um, in terms of the, the watch list, I think it's important for the audience to know that there are, are several elements that go into the watch list. One is around um, the, the volume of testing that's happening. 
The second is around the, the case rate, the number of new positive cases. And the third is around um, increasing in hospitalization of COVID positive patients. And then fourth, the availability of ICU beds as well as ventilators. And the one element uh, that has triggered our county to be on the watch list recently is around the increase in hospitalization. And since uh, it, it's, it's easy for me to speak about that because that is really what I've been immersed in, um, uh, not only career long, but also over the last four months uh, full time, I've been focused on our hospitalization rates from COVID and preparedness to handle an increase in surge. So I'll give you a bit of context of, of where we've been um, and where we are now. Back in March, uh, that was the point in time where we really started to see a climb in the hospitalized cases with COVID. Uh, that's also around the time that we instituted shelter in place. And what we learned from that experience is that it took two to three weeks to start to see the cases in the hospital stop climbing. Um, that was complicated a bit by several um, positive cases and clusters in our skilled nursing facilities. But by, by May or June, we started to see a decrease in the hospitalized cases with COVID. In fact, during that phase, um, we were having new admissions in the single digits per day related to COVID. We also, during that phase in May and June, we started seeing increase in the overall hospital census uh, due to surgeries that had been delayed, other care that had been delayed while people were, were fearful to come into the hospital, um, and even increase in, in trauma back toward baseline as there started to be more movement around the Bay Area. Then in July, we started to really see a steady increase in the number of patients admitted each day with COVID. At this point, we've been seeing um, between 25 to 30 new admissions across the hospitals in our county uh, on a daily basis who uh, have uh, COVID confirmed. To put context to that, uh, today across the hospitals in our county, we have 154 patients who are in the hospital with COVID confirmed. We have another 35 who are currently under investigation, meaning that their test results are uh, pending. Um, so that means we have 189 patients in the hospital when you add those numbers together above and beyond what our typical volume would be. And that's um, for, for each individual hospital, it's, it's manageable right now. But what we're really concerned about is that when you pair that together with the fact that each day it's climbing, um, we're headed into flu season where we already know that we have an increase uh, in cases on an annual basis related to flu. At baseline, our hospitals already run at a very high census, uh, meaning that their, you know, their beds and their staff are nearly fully occupied at, at baseline, um, uh, particularly in the winter months. And then finally, paired with the fact that uh, we anticipate seeing more need for hospital capacity for patients coming from other areas of the state uh, where there aren't as many hospital beds. The, the small Doctor, let me just interrupt for a minute and ask sure. then, does that mean that essentially we flattened the curve and then we didn't? That is absolutely correct. And and on our public health website, there is a, um, a section for hospitalizations. And you can literally see the curve went up in March. It came down and stayed pretty flat in May, June, and July. It has been an absolute steady increase day after day, um, uh, which is very worrisome. The, the small piece of good news I was going to mention is that um, the patients who are getting admitted to the hospital 
do seem slightly less sick than they were back in March. Um, they're a little bit younger, fewer comorbidities. We're seeing fewer deaths related to COVID. They're having shorter lengths of stay in the hospital and uh, fewer requirements for ICU level of care. Yet we are definitely seeing that number uh, in the ICU requiring ventilation. It is climbing every day. So uh, the good news is that it's not climbing um, uh, at an exponential case load right now, but there is great potential as those numbers continue to increase each day that we will surpass um, uh, our normal capacity in our hospitals. This is paired with a significant disruption in our supply chain. And I'll just really briefly mention how that's relevant to um, the hospitalized cases. It's been all over the media and most listeners are probably aware that PPE or personal protective equipment has been a challenge. Um, we've done a lot of work over the last few months to, to build up the supply in our hospitals, but we're starting to see things that are, that are less obvious uh, that where we're also trying to build up supply. Things like medications, uh, medications for sedation for people who are needing uh, ventilation in the ICU. Um, some very obscure supply chain issues are starting to come up. For example, when it comes to testing materials, there's a, a need for plastic pieces uh, in order to run the test in the laboratories. And um, that plastic is in short supply, which is just mind boggling, but uh, true. Um, when it comes to vaccines, as we hope for a vaccine, you know, the glass that's used to make the vial, the glass is in short supply. And then finally, um, the one that's most worrisome to us is sheer uh, human power in terms of staffing for staffing of increased uh, patients in the hospital. As the, the entire country has uh, clamored for increased staffing, the ability to pull in um, nurses and other medical professionals um, has become very limited. So that's really our, our main area of focus right now is to figure out how we can ensure that every bed that's available in our hospital has an appropriate level of staffing to go with it. And I'll pause there. Well, let me thank you. Very helpful. And let me let me just ask uh, before I get to the uh, next question that I had, had planned for you, which is, as I listen, to, what do what do your suppliers tell you? I mean, I I think any student of history would recall that 80 years ago, this country fought and won a world war on two continents in the matter of three and a half years. So it's a little bit frustrating uh, for folks to hear that you know four to six months in. Uh, we still can't produce a, a cotton nasal swab in sufficient quantities. Um, I, I mean, it, it just what what are your suppliers telling you is the is the problem uh, behind all this? Uh, these were perhaps understandable uh, issues, as I say, four to six months ago. But it, one would think at this point, people would have stepped up. What's the what's the challenge as you understand it? That's a good question, and, and it, is, uh, it is hard to wrap your head around sometimes. Um, part of what we're seeing now is elements that we knew were in short supply back in March, those are resolving. For example, gowns for healthcare workers. We're now able to uh, procure by um, gowns. Now it's new things, uh, you know, an, an enzyme that's needed to increase the um, the processing of specimens in the laboratory. That enzyme is in short supply. Um, uh, as I mentioned, the medications, it's the sheer volume of, um, of entities around the world who not only are trying to treat active cases, but just as we are trying to um, uh, accumulate what they might need over the next month, 
three months, uh, it's very hard to predict exactly what you might need. And so um, uh, many entities are trying to, uh, I don't like the word stockpile, but frankly stockpile to ensure that they have what they need. And that's, that's just really creating an ongoing disruption in a, in a rotating way, meaning that uh, new items keep popping up that are in short supply. Well, I know you're a doctor, uh, not an elected official, or a, but um, what's your sense of, um, you know, is there a, a, a plan at the state or national level, or are we all still four to six months later uh, essentially in competition with one another, which is uh, frankly the way it sounds? Uh, we remain in competition with each other, yes. I think um, uh, those are those are situations that we encounter daily, and, and we are trying our best to uh, within our county um, to help our hospitals from being in competition with each other and ensure that um, each hospital is well prepared. Um, but yes, the, that meaning not only are the three hospitals for which uh, the Santa Clara Valley Medical uh, Center is responsible, but the other hospitals out there as well. Uh, okay. that uh, serve patients here. All right, well, let me just ask, so if we flatten the curve and then we didn't, um, what do we need to do now to flatten it again and hopefully uh, put an end to this uh, back and forth, up and down cycle that I know is so challenging to you from a medical standpoint, so uh, challenging to the public in terms of their daily lives, their economy, and their work? Yes. Yeah, so one thing I think we need to be very cautious about is realizing that the, the ebb and flow is not a sort of a daily um, change. The, when, we, um, when we start taking extra precautions, it will take several weeks to see the impact of that, meaning that um, cases will continue to develop, cases will continue to require hospitalization. And uh, so we can't wait until the last minute because then it's really too late. Um, the other sort of difficult thing about the watch list that you asked about earlier is that um, it, it's frustrating to see that, you know, one day we're on the list, one day it looks like we should be off the list. And really, um, uh, again, it's, it's dangerous to think about it on a day-to-day -day basis, and we have to think about it on a, on a um, more longitudinal basis. Right now, um, what can we do? Well, you know, the, the obvious things are obvious, and I feel silly to even say them anymore because I think overall um, people are doing a really good job with the obvious of washing their hands, wearing a mask, keeping social distance um, from others. I think, I think we all have to sort of take a step back and say, are there things that I might be doing that I've I've sort of gotten comfortable with, and I need to rethink my comfort level um, and the impact that could have, um, because it, you know, individually we need to step back and say, can I roll back just a little bit in terms of social interactions or um, you know interactions outside my uh, immediate household that really are not essential. Um, no one wants to do you know harm to another person and infect another person, um, and Unfortunately, a lot of what we are seeing right now is um, transmission um, uh, in in areas where people were interacting that um, might not be considered really essential for their day-to-day -day living. So social gatherings of one sort or another is people just uh, feel the, the need to spend time with one another, really? Yes, yes, and I would add to that that um, the ability for our 
nation, really, to, to get ourselves together around testing is just critical because um, we know that some people are, are carrying the virus asymptomatically, some have very mild symptoms, and what we don't know yet is the extent to which that can be passed from person to person. And so the, the criticality of being able to um, uh, test asymptomatic people, quickly have access to testing, and for a fast turnaround of results, um, at this point, you know, without a, a, a known treatment that's readily available, without a vaccine, our, our maneuvers to fight this virus are really around um, taking precautions and then being able to quickly identify who's infected and um, help them quickly get isolated and supported during that period of isolation. Well, thank you. I know, uh, I know you and your colleagues have uh, heard uh, from me on this issue of testing uh, early on and that uh, people have scrambled to ramp up our testing here at Valley Medical Center. Could you share a little bit more about why that testing is uh, important, particularly in regards to uh, reaching out through the process called contact tracing? Why don't you tell us a little bit about what that is, why it matters, and why it's important to trying to bring uh, a successful end to this uh, cycle of um, on again, off again, uh, COVID surge. Sure, sure. So, you know, when we first started with COVID back in early uh, 2020, the testing was just not available. And it was very limited to those who, um, who had symptoms and who had um, specific risk factors. Fortunately, we have moved beyond that at this point. Um, and are testing a broader range of the population, including those who have had contact with positive cases, as well as those who um, uh, have high-risk situations, whether because of their, their medical situation or because of um, the type of work that they do. And it's just so crucial that we don't move back toward um, more restricted testing. The, the county, uh, through the pop-up sites that we have set up, we have identified a number of people who, um, who have tested positive who were quite surprised by that, meaning that they, they did not have symptoms that, that they thought seemed consistent with COVID, yet tested positive. Um, and so I'll, I'll use that scenario to describe what happens when somebody tests positive. Um, the first step is that they're notified by the entity who provided the test to them. And uh, with that notification, they're advised to start isolating um, and for their household contacts to be quarantined. I will briefly describe the difference between isolation and quarantine, so I'll have to admit I did not know this until I started this work around COVID. So a person who tested positive and is infected uh, is isolated. A person who has not yet tested positive but has been exposed is quarantined. Effectively, they're the same thing. It means um, you know, minimizing to every extent possible your interactions with other people. And um, uh, followed by that initial notification, the second point of contact with the person who tested positive would be by the public health case investigation team. They do a, a, a series of questions to identify you know, when the person's uh, symptoms started, if they had symptoms at all, uh, what people they might have exposed um, before knowing that they were positive. And so they're specifically looking for you know, who were they in contact with within, within a six-week range um, for a duration of approximately five, 10 to 15 minutes. Um, then the contact and case investigation team will ask the person if they're able to isolate safely away from others, particularly um, away from others in their household. Um, and then if they have a need for support services during that time of isolation. 
Then they're advised so on the duration. Let me, let me oh, just sorry. interrupt for a minute, Dr. Tom, and sure. say, so to grossly oversimplify, which, um, you know, is, I think, sometimes necessary uh, given the complexity of all this, the contact tracing is really just designed to make sure that having tested someone, having identified someone who does have the virus, that we then reach out and find out who they've been in touch with and get them to stop interacting with friends, family, colleagues, coworkers as quickly as possible to make sure that we don't have an even greater spread more quickly. Did I get it pretty well that's, together there? That's exactly right. And then the process extends from there to, um, to have contact with the people who were um, potentially exposed from that positive person, advising them also to quarantine based on that last date that they were in interaction with the person who tested positive and uh, for they themselves to be tested for the virus. Um, so it's so a, it's quick, a cascade quick of challenges. Excuse, excuse me again, but I, I, I am uh, I'm gathering from the reports that I get that your team sometimes struggles with the fact that people are worried that if they're quarantined, they'll have a loss of income. Is that uh, a common concern that you're seeing in your team? It is a concern. It is a concern. We have, uh, we have an entire team within our emergency operations center, our, our housing and human services branch um, that uh, operates um, uh, multiple different endeavors. Uh, first line is a hotline that is available for um, individuals to call uh, and refer someone who um, needs additional support during their period of isolation. That support could be in the form of um, a hotel room if they're not able to isolate from their family safely at home. Could be in the form of grocery delivery to their home while they're isolating, and it includes um, potential rental and financial assistance. Um, but yes, as you as you point out, the the um, concern over the economic impact to the individual um, is, a, is a common concern. Well, thanks for that. I do think it's helpful and important for folks to know that there is assistance out there for those who need it. Uh, you know, it's going to be, there, as you said, at the risk of stating the obvious, it's going to be a very different circumstance for a, a couple who may be empty nesters in a three-bedroom home uh, where someone can isolate in the family room if they have one at the end of the house, uh, as opposed to a uh, family with uh, four kids in a two-bedroom apartment uh, that are all, you know, uh, one, one on top of another and who uh, can't work remotely. So uh, I, I do think it's important for people to know that that's out there. All right. So um, thank you for that depth and breadth of understanding. Uh, but as you mentioned earlier, uh, we are um, – we're, we're still uh, at the point where the basics matter, uh, and it's the uh, washing of hands, the wearing of masks, the social distancing, and particularly now as we've seen this uh, resurgence of the virus, uh, the importance of avoiding uh, social gatherings where lots of folks are together with one another. Did I get that part recapped right? Exactly right, yes. And then we need to keep push, push, pushing on testing because without the testing, we don't have the epidemiological data we need, and we don't have the ability to do contact tracing, and that means we can't uh, get folks uh, out of the chain uh, that much uh, quicker. So um, thank you for that. I'm going to uh, ask you to stay with us, uh, Dr. Tong, uh, because we're going to do a quick poll question here. Then I'm going to go on to Mr. Lepresti from our county council's office. Uh, but um, as the questions come in, I can tell you we're getting questions that are both 
health questions as well as legal questions, and uh, we want to make sure we have time for that. So uh, hang in there with us, and thank you again. And uh, thank you for the work you've been doing as well. Uh, I know everybody's been uh, at it 24-7. All right, let me go uh, then to our poll question. And for those of you on the line, let me say this is an opportunity for us to um, assess a little bit what uh, folks in the county are most concerned about. And, uh, you know, a full acknowledgement, not a scientific sample. Obviously, uh, folks who are on the call today are folks who have a particular interest. But um, I, we're going to ask that uh, you help us understand a little bit better what you're most concerned about uh, with respect to the COVID-19 outbreak. Uh, we're pressing one, and I'll go through these twice. Press one if you're most concerned about elderly and at-risk relatives and friends, uh, or press two if you're most concerned about hospitals and medical staff's ability to respond to the outbreak to keep up, essentially, without being overwhelmed. Please press three if you're most concerned about uh, the loss of jobs and the effect this is all having on our economy, small businesses, uh, and, and uh, the economy more broadly. And press four if you are most concerned about students' ability to receive an adequate education while schools and universities uh, are either closed or using distance learning. So again, uh, what are you most concerned about? And we'll go through it one more time. Press one if it's about elderly and at-risk relatives and friends. Press two if it's about the ability of our health system, hospitals, and medical staffs to keep up. Press three if it's about the economic impact of COVID-19. And please press four if you're concerned about students' ability to receive an adequate education while schools and universities are closed or using distance learning. Uh, and um, that's the uh, poll for today. We've used the same poll from phone call to phone call in part to assess um, any changes in the uh, scene out there uh, among uh, the folks that I represent, that my colleagues and I represent. So thank you for sharing your uh, concern. It helps us get a handle on uh, what uh, is top of mind for you. Uh, our next guest, uh, as I mentioned earlier, is Mr. Uh, Tony Lepresti. And Mr. Lepresti, thank you for joining us today. Uh, Mr. Lepresti is uh, a uh, assistant county counsel, which means he's one of the uh, leadership team in our legal office here at Santa Clara County. But um, perhaps most importantly for today's call, he has been tasked with the assignment uh, almost since day one of trying to explain to people uh, what the various rules, regulations, uh, public health orders do or don't mean. Uh, my office, as you can imagine, gets hundreds, if not thousands at this point, of questions about, uh, is this allowed? Is that allowed? Can we do this? Can we do that? Uh, and, um, uh, you know, we go to Mr. Lepresti when we think that the answers uh, require a, a, a careful look and that the frequently asked questions on the county's website may not be sufficient. More often than not, frankly, the answers are there on the county's website uh, or on my uh, website at supervisorsubmidian.com, so we would encourage you to go there, but uh, Mr. Lepresti has been the, uh, the one to help us cut through all this and also to find some creative solutions so that things that perhaps at first seemed like they weren't doable could be doable if done right. So why don't I say welcome to Mr. Lepresti and um, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Supervisor Smitty, and it's a real uh, pleasure to be here with you. Well, thanks. And let me just begin with, and I know you know this is coming, um, there there certainly have has been some confusion about the, the provisions of Governor Newsom's 
uh, new order uh, beginning July 15th and how it affects Santa Clara County. Um, you know, I, I hear repeatedly from folks who are struggling to parse, uh, you know, what they can and can't do, what is and isn't appropriate given the direction from the state uh, and direction from our county public health officer. Can you give us a little bit of clarity about what just happened and, and where that kind of puts us all? Well, sure, I'll do my best to, uh, to explain what has become a, a very confusing uh, situation. I think to put the current moment into perspective, it's helpful to take a quick step back and just look at where we've been over the last four months with these orders. Starting uh, back in mid-March, the county's health officer, Dr. Cody, worked with Coalition of Bay Area Health Officers to issue a shelter-in-place order, series of them, that generally required that people stay home and that businesses stop all in-person operations. And there were exceptions, a lot of exceptions that were made for essential businesses, services, uh, but these orders were designed to, and I think in large part really succeeded at, keeping people home to limit the spread of the virus uh, during especially those early stages of the pandemic. So on July 2nd, Dr. Cody replaced the shelter-in-place order with what we call a risk reduction order. And unlike those prior orders, this order allows almost all businesses to operate, but it establishes across-the-board requirements that all businesses have to follow to ensure that they're operating in a way that really minimizes the risk of transmission. So things like capacity limitations, a social distancing protocol that all businesses have to complete and submit to the, uh, to the county, uh, mandatory reporting whenever there's a positive case, that sort of thing. And there are some additional rules that are specific to high-risk businesses like gyms and hair salons. So it's important to understand that in the county, there are two separate orders that set the rules of what you can and can't do. There's the county order, and then there's the state order. And businesses and residents have to comply with the more restrictive of the two. Now, generally, this hasn't been uh, much of a concern because the county order has been more restrictive than the state order. So folks could just follow the county order and call it a day. Uh, but last Monday, July 13th, the day that Dr. Cody's new risk reduction order went into effect, Governor Newsom announced new state restrictions that apply to over 30 counties on what we've been calling, what, what uh, you and Dr. Tong were just discussing as the monitoring list, uh, which Santa Clara is on. So the, the state's July 13th restrictions affect a lot of business sectors that were set to open in the county for the first time since March, including uh, businesses like gyms and fitness centers, hair and nail salons, personal care services, uh, certain office facilities. The state required that those facilities close all indoor operations, but it allowed them to continue operating outdoors to the extent that they're able to do that. So even though the county's order may allow these businesses to operate both indoors and outdoors, they're not allowed to operate indoors because the state's order is more restrictive uh, in that respect. So that's where we're at. Uh, it's certainly a confusing situation, and I'm, I'm happy to answer questions 
the, the best I can. You know, I should say that uh, there are a lot of unanswered questions about what the state is allowing and doesn't allow, and I think ultimately a lot of those questions need to be answered by the state. Uh, we're trying to get clarity uh, to the best of our ability and communicate that to, uh, to folks in the county. Well, thank you. I think it may be helpful for people to know that uh, even you who do uh, this work on a, a daily basis are um, sometimes struggling to uh, decipher just what the state requirements are. Mr. Lepresti, I want to go back and, uh, as my mother used to say, try and do the Reader's Digest condensed version for those on the call who know what that is. Um, and as, so what I heard is the initial approach from the county uh, public health officer was essentially about which business sectors on a sector-by-sector -sector basis could, could open and which had to remain closed. Eventually, there was a shift, which was to say, look, rather than identify particular sectors, we're just going to say, here's what you have to do to stay safe. And regardless of what sector you're in, you can probably go forward as long as you're following these safe, uh, safety precautions. And that was the, the fundamental nature of the shift here at the county. Did I get that part right? That's exactly correct. And then, just when we thought folks were going to be able to open up again, um, we got the word from the governor that he had a more robust statewide closure plan in mind. And uh, that meant that uh, all of a sudden folks were being told, well, you may be able to comply with our county regulations, but the state has now got us on a list that means we're um, effectively closed up even if uh, you uh, take all of these precautions. Is that where we stand as things are today? Yes, ex except for the businesses that the state's closing, that was only with regards to indoor operations to the extent that they can operate outdoors. Uh, they could continue. So if you can do a hair and nail salon outdoors, for instance, uh, that's allowed in the county. All right. Thank you. Um, it, it is confusing, but um, uh, any idea how long we will be under this current state order, or is that a function of uh, decision-making at the governor's office, which presumably is a function of the situation around the state? Um, there is not a lot of clarity on that right now. The first time that the state issued uh, restrictions specific to counties on the monitoring list, it made them effective for 21 days. That was back on, uh, I believe it was uh, July 1st. This time, however, the state has said that these additional restrictions are going to be in effect indefinitely until the state uh, rescinds them. So we're really... Um, at the mercy of the state here in terms of uh, the state making the decisions about when it wants to uh, uh, dial these back. Well, thank you. And, and you know, if this is, isn't confusing enough, the, the recent announcement about schools, I think, really has thrown people for a loop uh, in terms of understanding where we are with public schools uh, opening or not, uh, and whether their opening does or does not entail in-person uh, learning uh, or whether it's all online remote learning. Uh, we just got uh, the word on Friday that there's some significant changes. So uh, what can you share with us about what that looks like? Uh, because, you know, we're literally a matter of weeks away from the scheduled reopening of schools uh, who thought they were uh, operating on, under one set of directions and now have a, uh, a new uh, 
direction uh, from our state. Sure. So it's it's a similar story in a way. The county public health department issued guidance for all K through 12 schools uh, back on June 30th that provides a set of rules and recommendations for schools reopening for in-person instruction. Uh, in a nutshell, the county's rules require stable groups in elementary school, recognizing that children at this age are less able to keep face coverings on and socially distance and uh, generally speaking, uh, aren't as at risk um, of transmission. And then in the higher grades, uh, there's more of a focus on face coverings and, and social distancing. It's important, I think, to note that generally speaking, the state and the county are leaving it to school districts and individual private schools to decide what instructional model they'll adopt in the, in the fall. So because there are over you know, 30 districts in Santa Clara County, there could be 30 different models. And as you said on Friday, the, the governor announced that the state's uh, going to be imposing limitations on uh, schools reopening uh, in the counties that are on that uh, monitoring list we've been discussing. And if it's all right with you, um, uh, I have a, a colleague who I believe is also on the line uh, Marcelo Quinones, who can uh, represents uh, the Santa Clara County Office of Education and uh, is really the expert in this area, can I think speak yes, to this no, a little absolutely. bit? Let's yeah. pull let's pull Mr. Quinones in. Uh, Mr. Quinones, as I understand it, works for our county council's office, but handles matters for the uh, Santa Clara County Office of Education, which is a separate legal entity, a whole other branch of government, un, unrelated in most respects to our county government. Uh, but if uh, I, I think we're going to let Mr. Quinones be your phone a friend and give us a little more clarity about where things stand uh, looking at the uh, scheduled reopening of schools uh, in the next few weeks. Mr. Quinones, are you with us? Yes, I'm here. Thank you, Supervisor. Uh, so what's, what's going to happen and what's not going to happen and how come? Great. So uh, as Tony mentioned, there was uh, an announcement by the governor uh, just this past Friday uh, about a new framework that the California Department of Public Health put out uh, relating to when K-12 school campuses will be able to open for in-person learning uh, for this coming school year. So under the framework, uh, school districts, private schools, and charter schools, um, it's important to note it applies to each of these local educational agencies, um, they'll be able to reopen for in-person learning if they are located in a county that has been off the state's monitoring list for 14 days. So it's helpful that we just had that very thorough discussion of the monitoring list. Um, the county, as, as been, has been alluded to a few times during the call, is currently on the state's modern, monitoring list. And what that means is that middle schools and high schools in Santa Clara County will not be able to reopen for, uh, fully for in-person learning until the county is off the state's monitoring list and stays off of the list for 14 straight days. Uh, it's important to note However, that the state's framework does allow for elementary schools to open uh, for in-person learning before the county is removed from the monitoring list, um, that, and that's subject to approval from the local health officer. Uh, and Mr. Quinones, let me, let me just interrupt you there. I, 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 you're kind of obviously a glasses half full kind of guy, but as I understand the state order, elementary schools, quote, cannot open for in-person learning unless that the, the sort of the starting point is 
no, you may not have in-person learning even at the elementary school level unless a superintendent in a particular district specifically asks the public health officer for authorization and unless the public health officer um, grants authorization on a county-by-county -county basis. Do I have that right? Exactly. The, it's by a district or charter school or private school basis, and yes, um, they would have to apply for a waiver. Uh, we are, uh, our public health department is encouraging school districts, charters, and private school um, leaders to apply for, for a waiver to safely resume in-person instruction this fall. Got it. Sorry to take you off and, track, but I wanted to make sure people understood that there wasn't any blanket assurance that their elementary schools were uh, going to be able to offer in-person learning uh, with the start of school in a few weeks. No, Anything that, else about exact, that? that we should, go ahead, sir. No, that's exactly right. And I just want to um, close the loop on that, um, the mention of the waiver process by saying that, you know, our recommendation for uh, districts to uh, district superintendents to apply for that waiver is really based on uh, the scientific evidence that Tony mentioned that really suggests that the COVID-related risk of serving elementary school age students does appear lower than and different from the risks of staff and students in serving older older students. Um, and also the significant impacts that we know the loss of in-person instruction has on social, emotional, and just the overall well-being of elementary school age children. Got it. But again, this is a decision that will ultimately made be made, and I know you're uh, doing a very uh, determined job of making sure we don't forget private schools, charter schools, but for the 32 uh, K through 12 districts, or, or those that at least serve elementary school populations, um, they, they will need to make the determination district by district as to whether or not they want to pursue uh, in-person learning and then request a waiver from uh, our county's public health officer, yes? That's exactly right. Okay, uh, and I think it's important for folks to know that because I think it's important for them to know that the decision-making process about whether or not to go forward starts with uh, the local district and decision by the local district uh, before uh, it comes uh, to or through uh, the county. Uh, thank Absolutely. you, Mr. Mr. Lepresti, anything else on the issue of school openings here, which uh, is Again, also fairly complicated, but I think we've managed to walk through the basics. No, I think the, I think those are the uh, the key points. There's a, a lot of detail to it. Uh, I think it's very helpful to look at the reopening guide on the county COVID-19 website, which is available to you. There's also uh, the state's uh, industry-specific guidance, uh, and uh, I think you get a sense of all of the different elements of uh, how the how the county and the state are viewing uh, the the fall at this point. Thanks, Mr. Lepresti. And if I remember correctly, that's the 20, 22-page document that's available online in the terms of guidance and regulations for our schools, yes? Yes, correct. It's called COVID-19 Prepared Reopening of Santa Clara County K-12 Schools. All right. And that's on our public health uh, website here at Santa Clara County for those who I want to take a look, and Mr. Lepresti, just one last clarification before we move on, because I want to get to questions now from the general public here. Um, the, uh, the document that you described, as I recall, makes a distinction between things that are absolutely regulations, meaning required, 
and guidelines or recommendations, meaning things that may not be required, but that are nonetheless identified as best practices. Am I remembering that right? Yes, you sure are. Uh, there, There's uh, gray boxes in there. It literally says requirements on it. That's what everybody has to do as a matter of law. And then there's uh, a set of recommendations which, uh, you know, are going to apply, should apply in most cases, uh, but uh, schools have discretion to make a sort of facility-by-facility facility, uh, determination about uh, implementing those. Okay. Thank you for that. I'm going to uh, offer up the poll results right now, and then we're going to move right into questions from folks who were on the call. We had asked earlier uh, if folks were most concerned about uh, the vulnerability of uh, folks who are at risk, elderly, friends, uh, or whether it was uh, about the ability of our healthcare and hospital system to keep pace, or whether it was about the economy, or whether it was about school. And as I say, this is a, um, a question that we've asked now over the last, oh gosh, uh, two, three months. And uh, the results today are uh, very uh, much uh, mixed. We've got 32% who say their highest concern is folks who are at risk, friends, uh, elderly. 26% uh, who say their greatest concern is the ability of our healthcare system to keep up, to keep pace essentially with the challenge. 22% who said uh, the economy, and 20% who said schools. And I should just mention that that is the uh, highest number thus, uh, thus thus far in our telephone town halls for schools. Uh, it is, I think as school approaches and as we've gotten this direction from uh, the state, uh, there appears to be a greater and greater concern about just how will folks manage uh, if our schools are not able to provide in-person learning notwithstanding the health effects. So we're going to go to questions now. And again, uh, if you haven't had a chance to ask your question, please go to star three. And um, uh, for those who are online, we have a number uh, who are participating in the uh, town hall today online. Uh, you see the question function there, and uh, many of you have taken advantage of that. So please feel free to ask your questions there. Uh, for folks who are live on the call, we're going to go directly to them and let them articulate their question. Uh, we ask you to be brief and make sure it is in the form of a question. For folks who have asked their question on the web, uh, I will simply uh, give a first name and uh, shout out the question on their behalf. So we're going to go to a live question first, and that is uh, from Mimi in Cupertino, uh, who had a question about opening and closing and uh, confusion about whether things might be COVID or allergies. Mimi, are you still on the call with us? Apparently not, but let me see if I can pick up the thread of the question. Uh, and I think this is one for uh, Dr. Tong. Uh, Mimi from Cupertino wants to know, with all of the opening and closing, starting and stopping, how do we know that the problem is COVID and not just allergies? That is the question. Well, I would say we know that, the, that those who are testing positive and ending up ill enough to be in our hospitals, um, the, that is not due to allergies. So um, that part is very, very clear to me. How does an individual and at home? Me, and presumably that's also one of the reasons we do the test, to distinguish between someone who's got <laughs> allergic reactions and someone who's actually got COVID, yes? Exactly. That's what I was just going to say is that someone who's uh, at home and not all that sick, it can be hard to tell, which is exactly why, um, you know, it is important for our health systems to be able to test those, even with mild symptoms that could be confused for allergies. 
All right. Thanks for that. Let me go to Dexter in Mountain View, uh, who had a question about uh, indoor dining versus outdoor dining. Dexter, are you still with us on the call? Yes, I am. Uh, Mr. Lepresky, um, I wonder if you might know uh, who thought that it was wise to uh, dine outdoors rather than indoors, since being downwind of other people at other tables is so scary to me, and especially considering that if you live, you have a 30% chance of chronic health problems, which may turn out to be permanent. Let me go to Mr. Lepresti and to Dr. Tong. Thank you for that question. Uh, Mr. Lepresti, you want to start, or should we go to Dr. Tong first? I can start, but I actually think that this really is a, a question that Dr. Tong can uh, lend more insight into. The, one of the main distinctions that's made in the risk reduction order, we're seeing it in the state order as well, is that uh, there's a real push to uh, put business activities and all activities outdoors rather than indoors. And that's because uh, study after study has shown that the risk of transmission outdoors is uh, very much lower than it is indoors because of the ways uh, that the aerosols uh, uh, disperse outdoors versus indoors. And so it really is a, a major tool in our toolbox that would allow us to get small businesses back up and running uh, while not uh, not putting too much risk of transmission uh, uh, into the community. And I'll stop there and pass it on to Dr. Con Tong, who can right. articulate that much better than I can, I'm sure. Thank you, Mr. Lepresti. We, we don't want you to have to get an MD in addition to your JD. So let's go to Dr. Tong. Dr. Tong, what's your take on that question about indoor versus outdoor, particularly with respect to dining? Sure. Well, I would, I would just say that, uh, you know, the data suggests that when we've seen outbreaks um, and when we look at person-to-person -person individual transmission, the, the, um, the incidence of that happening is just greater in indoor situations. Um, you know, we, we didn't see the transmission that we really worried about associated with protests around the country. Um, yet a lot of outbreaks that we're seeing in workplaces are um, in indoor settings. So the, the data points to indoors being um, more risky. In terms of the question about long-term health effects, for that, we just have not had enough time yet to uh, know exactly what the long-term health, health effects are going to be, particularly in those with more mild illness who might not have even been diagnosed um, if testing wasn't available. Um, we just don't know yet the extent of long-term health effects. All right. Uh, we've got a question from uh, Chris in San Jose about uh, how we get ourselves off the watch list. Let me see if Chris is still on the line with us. Chris, are you with us? Yep, I am. Yeah, I just am interested in, in understanding what the numbers need to look like before we get off the, the watch list and to move ahead with what uh, Dr. Cody had in store for us on, on July 2nd. Why don't we start with Mr. Lepresti and then go to uh, Dr. Tong, because, again, this is one of those items that I think cuts across both the legal and the uh, medical domains. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thanks for the question, Chris. There, there are five different uh, criteria that the state is monitoring uh, on the, to, to determine what counties are on the monitoring list. Um, the, you know, the two that I think we're looking most closely at and, uh, you know, have potential or actual problems with, as Dr. Tong 
referred to earlier is the hospitalization rate. And the way that that's calculated is that they're looking at the three-day average uh, hospitalization rate as compared to the prior three days to see whether we've had more than a 10% increase. And uh, we have uh, for a while been um, uh, over 10%. I think that might change here uh, very soon. The other uh, um, criteria we're looking closely at is the case rate, uh, which can't be more than 100 per 100,000 over a 14-day period. Um, rather than get into the weeds uh, of, the, of the math, there's a, actually a pretty good description of these criteria and how they're calculated on the, on the state's website. Got it. Thanks. Dr. Tong, other thoughts? I'll just add to that. I, I was surprised just before this call, I looked at the state website and um, you know, yesterday when I looked, it showed Santa Clara County and it showed the metrics that uh, you know, we're not meeting the target and therefore uh, are on the monitoring list. When I looked today, it shows check marks suggesting that Santa Clara County is uh, meeting the metrics and that doesn't feel right to me. Um, so that is why I wanted to make the point that you know, the day-to-day the -day changes um, are misleading. Um, we had one day in the past few days where the number of newly admitted COVID positive patients was um, lower than every other day that we've seen in the last two weeks. And so I don't know if that is what made us, you know, get a, a, a check mark meaning good um, for today. But uh, what I know about our, our hospitalization rates and our hospital status, um, it does not feel to me at all as though we should suddenly be off the monitoring list. and, and you know, we, we need to, again, um, look at it more longitudinally than day-to-day. -day. So it's about longer-term trends, yes? Yes. And it's about us all behaving in a way that pushes those numbers down again if we want to get off the list and get uh, folks back to something that more likely resembles their day-to-day -day routine, yeah? Exactly, exactly. In a way that we're not bouncing on and off the list, um, we all need to, you know, not only uh, achieve those levers of carefulness, but uh, be very consistent um, for the long haul with, with those um, measures. Got it. Thanks so and much. Super, Supervisor, if I can just add, I think, you know, one thing just to reemphasize is um, we, we're the, the state's restrictions don't go away just because on any given day we're off the three-day monitoring uh, list or back on it. Um, we were on it uh, when these restrictions were put into place. And so even if, even if we are able to come off of it, we still have to wait for the state to give the go-ahead uh, in order for those restrictions to release. Got it. All right. Thank you. We have a, another question. This one is uh, uh, from a caller in Palo Alto. Winnie, are you still with us? a call about uh, asymptomatic people with COVID. Yes, I have a question for, oh, actually I have two questions for you don't mind. Uh, the first question is for Dr. Tong, and that is the people who are um, COVID carriers who are asymptomatic, do we know if they have internal or systemic damage, even, even though, or organ damage, even though they, you know, don't have any symptoms? So we do not know the answer to that yet. Um, it's definitely a, a question of interest for scientists and medical professionals, but um, there has not been sufficient time to really evaluate um, a valid answer to that question. Oh, okay, thanks. 
um, Candice, can I ask a second question really quick? Sure, Winnie, um, we're going to go ahead and let you sneak a second question in quickly. Thank you. Sure. Okay. Um, is there any state protocol that requires um, their, their workers or employees to, to be uh, screened for fever um, every day before go to work? For example, uh, three weeks ago when my daughter went for her DMV testing, driver testing, and then um, I asked a question of the supervisor. The supervisor said that, no, they do not screen any of their workers for fevers you know, when they come in. Um, so my daughter had a driver test. So potentially, if that, that, that tester is um, pot potentially infected or has a fever that we don't know, then that person gets in the car of, or anybody else's car and potentially infects, you know, that way, you know, my concern is that's how cases get transmitted from person to person. And even right. those... I Thanks, Winnie. Let me, uh, forgive the interruption, let me go uh, to Mr. Lepresti first to say what's required, or to ask what's required and then let me go to Dr. Uh, Tong briefly to say what would be ideal. Uh, Mr. Lepresti, let's start with you on that one. Sure, thanks, Winnie. Uh, so the place to look with regards to the state protocols uh, is in the state industry-specific directives. I know that at least in some industries they do require uh, screening, uh, but I don't know whether it is the case across the board. What I can say is that in the county, uh, every business that's operational has to have a social distancing protocol completed and submitted to the county. And that uh, protocol requires uh, that screening occur uh, before uh, on employees and personnel before they uh, come to the business. So it doesn't uh, necessarily mean that uh, their temperature needs to be taken, but there does need to be questions asked as to whether they have a measured uh, fever or a felt fever, and if they do, they would not be allowed to enter into the workplace. So effectively, in in our county at least, uh, that requirement exists. But the, Mr. Lepresti, just so I'm clear and our listeners are clear, that's a screening which uh, might very well not include or incorporate testing given the limitations of testing at the moment, yes? That's correct. Okay. And uh, Dr. Tong, your thoughts about what would be ideal? Sure. Um, so I, ideal is if, uh, if it's possible for people not to come to work if they're feeling sick at all. Um, fever tends to be later in the onset of COVID, um, unlike flu, where, you know, early, early on uh, in the development of symptoms with flu, people are febrile. With COVID, um, it tends to occur later. So it, it doesn't turn out to be one of the more sensitive ways, uh, checking temperature, I mean, at the workplace does not turn out to be one of the more sensitive ways to um, identify those who are in the early stages of COVID. Typically, by the time the fever develops, the person is feeling ill enough to stay out of the workplace. So um, uh, from a health perspective, screening for um, any symptoms is probably just as sensitive, but um, again, relies on the individual who's being screened to be honest and upfront, um, and then have mechanisms to um, to be tested if they're having even mild symptoms. Thank you so much. We have a lot of questions that are in some way, shape, or form tied into testing. I'm gonna start with Pat and Santa Clara, and then uh, I will uh, share a couple of questions that came in online uh, as well. Let me see if we can get to Pat and Santa Clara who had a, a question about shortages. Pat, are you still with us? Yes, I am. Thanks for joining us. What's your question? Well, I think since the national leadership is not going to take charge of testing, somebody 
has to get involved and decide why is it a big surprise that we need increased lab capabilities? Why is it a big surprise that we need more plastic? There are all kinds of factories across this nation that might be able to help with that if somebody would publicize what it is they actually need, and they also could perhaps help labs gear up. I mean, I don't understand why they're not ready anyway. We've known for a long time we want to do 10,000 tests a day. Why didn't they think about this? Who is in charge? All right. Thank you. Uh, uh, Tony Lepresti, would you like to begin? And then we'll go to uh, Dr. Tong. We talked about this a little bit earlier in the call, uh, but um, uh, I think it would be a um, uh, a helpful uh, conversation for us to have briefly. Sure. I, you know, I think this is uh, absolutely a challenge that we're facing. I think we've come to recognize that uh, that the national leadership isn't providing the kind of resources uh, that we need in order to uh, meet the testing uh, needs uh, that exist. Um, there is, I think, a um, has been a, a, a partnership between our county and the state uh, in trying to scale up the amount of testing uh, that's happening every day and, uh, you know, shore up the supply chain. Um, and we've been able to make, I think, pretty important strides. Uh, but we are still absolutely searching for additional uh, resources and looking at ways to get uh, new sources of material uh, onto line. Uh, online. As Dr. Tong mentioned earlier, uh, it's just uh, very difficult when uh, your competition is literally the, the whole world. So, you know, um, it's definitely something we're looking into. Everybody's trying to be creative about it, uh, but there are a lot of barriers. Thank you so much. Uh, Dr. Tong, thoughts on this one? Sure. I'll just elaborate a bit on the plastic piece since I mentioned it earlier because uh, I think it just helps illustrate the complexity. Um, most of the testing that we do in our county is done by one of the health systems in our county. Um, for example, the, the Valley Medical Center Lab um, can test over 3,000 specimens per day. Uh, Stanford tests multiple thousands per day. Um, the, the equipment that those labs use is dependent upon um, vendors who provide something called reagents, which is what is used inside the lab to help uh, run a specimen, determine if it's positive or negative for COVID. And uh, there's this little piece of plastic in the middle of the process, which when I first heard about it last week as a new item of, of scarcity, um, my first thought was, well, my goodness, I have a 13-year-old who's pretty good with a 3D printer. Can I print some of these pieces of plastic? And so I looked into it more and learned that um, it's a very, very uh, highly specialized piece that the precision with which it's manufactured is critical in order to uh, run the test properly. And unfortunately, the, the company that makes this piece is a European country, uh, a company, sorry, um, and uh, we already have very smart people in our country trying to reverse engineer this piece to allow for 3D printing of it. So um, in response to that, we started looking for uh, commercial labs around the country who might not be dependent on this little piece of plastic. Um, and we're, we're making some progress in identifying such labs. But uh, again, it's a race. We are literally trying to race and get to these specific labs before the rest of the country does. Um, and it, it is truly one of the most frustrating things I've dealt with in my career to feel um, uh, 
somewhat helpless in uh, solving what seems like it should be a, a simple problem, but is not. Thank you, Dr. Tong. Well, I think it might be helpful if you shared with folks as well um, the the pooling of tests uh, that's going on. It's it's one of those things that, frankly, I I hadn't given a thought to until someone said, "Here's our next uh, effort to." I get more tests, and yet as soon as I heard it, I thought, well, of course, that's obvious. Could you describe what uh, pooling of tests is, how it works, and why it uh, gives us the opportunity to do more tests than would otherwise be possible? Sure. I will try to explain it in the simplest way possible without uh, causing that simplicity to be inaccurate in any way. Um, it, the way that the test has been run so far has been, if you think about it, sort of one-to-one, one swab from a patient with one um, uh, amount of reagent to get a result. And what we know from uh, other areas of lab science, um, it is possible to, to take multiple specimens from multiple patients and use that same amount of reagent that you would have used for the one specimen uh, to test all of them. So for example, I could bundle together or pool together five specimens from five patients, use that same amount of reagent that I would have used for the one patient, um, and if all five of those people are negative, then I'm done. Um, if any of them are positive, then I have to go back and test each one individually. And importantly, it's not necessary to bring the person back to be tested again. The swabs don't interact in a way that, that they um, sort of infect each other. Um, uh, but then you can test each one and determine which one was the positive in the group. And so this is um, a way that our own county lab at Valley Medical Center has been able to um, multiply the availability of our reagent supply, given that it is one of the uh, rate-limiting steps in being able to expand testing further. Ah, got it. Thank you. Well, as I say, a simple but effective multiplier. We have a couple of questions from the web uh, on testing as well. One from Mike in uh, Mountain View who asks, what actions is the county taking to get healthcare providers meaning folks like uh, Palo Alto Medical Foundation or El Camino Hospital or the Kaiser Health System. What action is the county trying to get, taking to get healthcare providers to provide a more robust regular testing? Um, either one of you like to share that because we do have an order uh, from our public health officer on this, I know. I can speak to that, sure. I was involved in that order. So, so we do have a public health order um, to all of the health systems uh, in the county, meaning um, any um, hospital or clinic entity that is part of a system that operates a hospital. And the order um, uh, requires that if a person presents for testing, if they have symptoms, if they've been a contact of someone who was diagnosed, um, or if they are... Um, uh, an essential worker, someone who um, uh, interacts in close proximity to members of the public, um, then the health system is, is required to offer them a test. The, the health systems in our county um, uh, are continuing to expand upon the, the offering of those tests, continuing to expand upon you know, their own lab capabilities. Um, but just as our county lab is doing, it's becoming necessary for everyone to look outside um, at additional commercial lab opportunities uh, across the nation. And so as a county, in addition to that health order, we've also been working with each health system to help them uh, ex explore the options um, of using other laboratories, not the ones that we commonly hear about with the 10-day delays. We don't want that at all. Um, but there are, are other labs uh, that are offering quicker turnaround. 
And so we are um, facilitating information sharing about those labs, as well as facilitating information sharing about the, the pooling process that I was just mentioning. Thank you so much. Let me just confirm, though, uh, because I, I, I've gotten uh, enough uh, calls and emails and conversations, so it's beyond anecdotal. Um, Mr. Lepresti and Dr. Tong, if someone is symptomatic, they have a right to be tested, a right to be tested. Um, if someone has been um, in uh, exposed to someone who has a confirmed case of COVID, they have a right to be tested. And if someone is in uh, frequent contact with others, whether that's because they're a grocery store clerk or a frequent rider of mass transit, they have a right to be tested under the existing order. Mr. Lepresti, uh, forgive me if I sound a little pointed on this one, but uh, is, is that correct? Did I, did I get that right? That's generally correct. Um, with regards to the frontline workers that might have had some interaction, um, you know, there's an encouragement that they be that they be tested. Um, but uh, as far as I know, there's not a requirement that they be uh, allowed to test. And All Dr. Right. Kong, you might Dr. Tong, you might know otherwise. Dr. Kong. Um, yes. Sorry, I was getting myself off mute. Um, so there are in the health order, which is which is available online, actually on the public health website. Um, there are an expanded population beyond just those who have symptoms and beyond just those who are contacts to cases. Um, and I would want to look at it again to make sure I describe exactly the segment of uh, additional expansion beyond that. But there are others, um, for example, those who work in congregate uh, care facilities. Um, where testing is, they have a right to be tested. All right. Well, thank you. Uh, we do, uh, you mentioned in passing the labs where we've had delays. Uh, we do have a question from Joan that also came in online, which is, what is being done to speed up the process of testing? Uh, haven't gotten testing results in nine days. Dr. Tong, maybe that one goes your way. Thank you. Yes, yes. I mean, we, we find that absolutely unacceptable from a public health standpoint. Um, we're proud that the, the tests that are offered by the county, run by the Valley Medical Center lab or our public health lab, um, our turnaround time is two to three days, and we're, we're very committed to, to keeping it at that turnaround time. Um, unfortunately, most hospitals across the whole country had um, contracts in place with only a handful of commercial labs. Um, and so it was very uh, obvious and easy for them to send specimens to those commercial labs, which just immediately got overwhelmed within the last um, uh, month. And so that is, um, that is why we are expanding, expanding the horizon uh, and looking at commercial labs beyond those that were most typically used in the past. Importantly, we want to make sure those are um, legitimate labs. It's it's worse to give someone a result that's uh, on a you know on a machine that doesn't really work, um, or from a lab that doesn't process specimens accurately. So uh, that is part of the analysis um, as well as we expand to other laboratories. All right, and Mr. Lepresti, and, uh, yeah. I want to just to go. Sorry, just to go back to that last question. That, so that is actually correct. If there is uh, anyone who has been in contact with somebody who is a confirmed uh, COVID-19 case, they do, as you said, have a right to be tested by a healthcare provider. That's correct. 
and I have hopped onto the web page uh, just as you did, apparently, and I noticed that it also indicates that, uh, pursuant to the order, all persons with or without COVID-19 symptoms who are at increased risk of exposure to COVID-19 by virtue of working in high-risk settings or frequently or routinely traveling by mass transit or attending a mass gathering of 100 or more individuals in the 14 days prior to presenting for testing, all of those folks are, uh, uh, are entitled as a matter of right to a test from their healthcare facility. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Thanks, and I know I'm pressing you, uh, Mr. Lepresti, but that's because this is a question that uh, we keep getting in my office and I have to assume in other offices as well. Uh, I think, um, you know, candidly, some of our local healthcare providers have been inconsistent at best, and I do wanna make sure that people understand that pursuant to the order uh, of June the 10th from the public health officer, uh, they have a right to get a test if they fit any of those three uh, descriptions, including working in a high risk setting uh, as it's described or defined in the order, uh, also uh, frequent use of mass transit or being in a large gathering uh, and at some time recently. So to that end, I have a live question from Gene in Palo Alto. Uh, so uh, it's about where drive-through testing uh, might be located and available. And um, let me go to uh, Jean in Palo Alto if she's still on, if he or she is still on the line. Oh, it's 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 uh, Jean with a J, so it's uh, got it. Thank yeah, you. yeah, yeah. So, and we've met by the way over the years. But uh, my concern is simply drive-through services. Uh, I understood there were some in Menlo Park recently, but if you look, most of the testing services on the website you have are in the South South Bay, Milpitas, uh, San Jose. There is something at Palo Alto City Hall, but it's not equivalent to a drive-through, and so I just wanted to know what the options were for drive-through. Thank you uh, very much, Jean. And um, let me see if either uh, Dr. Kong or Mr. Lepresti can comment, and if not, I've got uh, just a couple of thoughts I would share with you as well. I'll just comment to say that we are starting to see some increased testing um, from private entities in our county, such as uh, Walgreens, opened a drive-through test last week. Um, I don't know if that's made it onto our website yet. Uh, we are waiting to make sure that their, their turnaround time is um, appropriate. Um, and yes, the, the website does uh, sccfreetest.org remains the, um, the most comprehensive list of the different testing options. Got it. And uh, Jean, forgive me, I just don't know as of today uh, what's drive-through and what's not, but uh, I would encourage you to check both um, uh, El Camino Hospital for folks who live or work in the El Camino Hospital District. The hospital, of course, is in Mountain View, but if you live or work in their district, uh, then uh, you are eligible. I cannot recall, frankly, whether any of that is drive-through but we've got uh, Planned Parenthood uh, in uh, Mountain View as well, who has been partnering with the county, and uh, they have been doing drive-through testing uh, on a Monday through Thursday basis uh, over at the Shoreline Athletic Field. And um, my understanding is that uh, folks have used that and found it uh, relatively uh, easy, hassle-free. Um, all of this is, of course, uh, you know, a bit of a hassle, but. If you were looking for something close to your location in Palo Alto, Planned Parenthood in Mountain View 
uh, is uh, offering drive-through testing uh, at the Shoreline Athletic Fields. All right, thank you. Then uh, we also have a uh, question now from, uh, I believe it's Venkat in uh, Saratoga about the maximum number of folks at social gatherings. Are you still with us? Apparently not, but the question, Mr. Lepresti, is um, what is the maximum number of people allowed at social gatherings as things now stand? And uh, I've been in touch with you in your office about this just recently, as you know, so I'll probably have a follow-up on this one just to make sure we drill down a little bit. But if somebody said, can I have some folks uh, over uh, for a social gathering, what's the maximum number right now? Sure. So in the county, uh, indoor gatherings are not allowed, uh, allowed at all, so you can't have uh, more than a single household indoors. Outdoor gatherings are allowed up to 60 people in line with the mandatory directive on gatherings. That said, the state has uh, prohibited outdoor gatherings except for a limited set of activities uh, that are generally related to uh, religious worship, cultural ceremonies, protests, and the like. So outdoor gatherings uh, for, say, a dinner party are not allowed by the state and therefore uh, can't happen in the, uh, in the county. So just to be clear, uh, Mr. Lepresti, um, if uh, one of our uh, listeners was thinking, you know, uh, we haven't seen uh, thus and such a couple for ages. We'll have them over. We'll socially distance. We'll wear masks, and we'll do it in the backyard. As things now stand, that is pro even that would be prohibited by the state order, not the county order. Is that correct? That's correct. All right. Well, thank you, because I, I think, um, as we discussed earlier, the uh, challenge of, uh, of uh, understanding the interaction between these local orders and the state orders is a tough one. And I, I, I'm willing to bet that half the folks on the call right now didn't know they couldn't have a couple over to uh, flip burgers in their backyard if they wanted to. Uh, and uh, on that same topic, just uh, so we're clear, we do still allow outdoor dining in the county and without any state prohibition, we still do allow outdoor dining at restaurants, yes? That's correct. Uh, outdoor but, dining is allowed. But... Could uh, someone invite another couple out for outdoor dining and sit down at the same table? Not in the county. Uh, in the county, this is an area where the county is more strict than the state. Uh, the county only allows a single household to dine outdoors uh, at once. So if you go to a restaurant uh, and you were to sit down with a, a separate household, that would be in violation of the county order. And the restaurant should not be seating uh, more than a, uh, people from more than one household at a time. All right. Well, thank you for that clarification, because I know a lot of folks have been delighted and excited about the chance to go out and grab a meal outdoors, at outdoor dining at a, a restaurant. Um, but I, I'm not uh, sure, again, that uh, most folks understood that that was supposed to be their household only uh, and that they can't gather with uh, even another couple of folks from uh, another household. Uh, we have um, a question, a very basic one. Thank you, Giselle, for asking from Palo Alto. Giselle, are you still on the line? And if so, would you share your question, please? Thanks so much, um, and thanks for hosting these. They're great. Um, my question is that I read in the paper in June that we were bringing patients in from Imperial County, overflow patients, into Santa Clara. And I'm 
concerned about those patients being in our hospital numbers since that's what's pushing us over the edge for the watch list. And I'm also wondering if there's any input from county health on that percent of increase, because if it's on a low base, it seems like an unfair penalty to education to um, use the percentage increase. So I guess that's my one question. Thank you very much. I can answer that. So you are correct that um, we did see a few patients transferred in from Imperial County. It turned out to be significantly fewer than what uh, we anticipated. Um, fewer than five patients total came to um, to our county. Um, not only the hospitals run by our county, but I mean the entire uh, set of hospitals within our county uh, from Imperial County. And the um, the state's calculation of hospitalizations allows us to um, remove certain patients. For example, if we had received several from uh, the San Quentin prison, which at one point we thought we might, uh, those get removed from our hospitalization counts. In terms of the question about the, um, the, the base count, our base count is not small. Um, 154 patients today with COVID in our hospitals is, is not a tiny number. So, um, I think the answer to that is is that it's it's a large enough number for ten percent to really mean something. Um, the other thing I was going to mention is that you know there are hospitals in our county that have patients hospitalized there from other counties. For example, uh, a good example is Sanford, which sits on the border of San Mateo County and is a sort of a referral center um, for a variety of of reasons for patients from other counties. Um, the reality is. Those patients are taking up uh, capacity. They need care, and they're impacting the capacity in our hospitals. Um, you know, we we want to be able to provide service to patients who who need our care, and so um, uh, it wouldn't make sense for us to completely exclude those patients from our from our counts. All right, thank you. And we're uh, starting to count down on time here. I want to respect everyone's time, but uh, I just can't resist a question that came in from Judy on the web, which is. When will COVID infection stabilize? Dr. Tong, we're all that's the question everybody wants to know the answer to. When will COVID infection stabilize? Oh, I wish I had the magic answer to that. Um, you know, I, I suspect we're probably gonna see a few cycles and until we have an effective vaccine, I think we'll see a few cycles uh, of up and down like we've seen over the last few months that uh the cases will climb, we'll find ways to make them stabilize, we'll get you know, comfortable with those ways and possibly uh, deviate uh, from that, and we'll start to see a climb again. So it just highlights that we are in this for the long haul until, um, until hopefully one day there is an effective vaccine for this. Thank you. Let me just ask, uh, and I'm, uh, forgive me if I put you on the spot, Dr. Tong, and if you uh, feel you can't give a uh, response, I'm certainly going to understand, and I know the listeners will too, but in your best professional judgment, does that mean that we're likely to still be uh, wearing face masks come December of this year? Unfortunately, I think that is very likely to be the case. All right. I just uh, thank you for that. I uh, I know it's a best professional assessment, but uh, I think, uh, you know, all of us are struggling to come to grips with uh, just uh, how long-term this challenge is going to be for, obviously, our county, our state, uh, and the nation. So thank you for that. Uh, regrettably, we are just about out of time. So uh, notwithstanding the fact that we have 
many more uh, very good questions. Uh, my regrets, my apologies uh, that we couldn't get to them all today, even with the expanded time. I do want to say thank you to uh, Dr. Jennifer Tong and to Mr. Tony Lepresti for being with us, uh, for uh, helping us with uh, their uh, answers to today's questions, and perhaps most importantly for the work they're doing every darn day. Um, thank you both, and thank you to uh, Marcelo Quinones uh, for being uh, uh, an additional resource to help us with the uh, seemingly ever more complicated set of questions and answers around uh, school in the fall uh, and what that will or won't look like. My, my thanks uh, to both. For those of you who did not get a chance to have your questions uh, asked and answered today, again, my regrets, but uh, there will be an opportunity at the end of this call. You'll hear a brief recorded message and a tone, and uh, if you'd like to leave uh, a question at that time, please do, and we'll do our level best to get back to you. Please give us a couple of days because I'm sure we'll have a number. Uh, also, if you'd like to leave a comment, we'd like to have it. I'd like to have it uh, to find out if you continue to find these telephone town halls helpful, uh, what you'd like us to cover in the future, uh, and um, whether the time and day is convenient or if you've got another suggestion. So any comments or questions, please just stay on the line uh, after uh, the sound of the tone, and we'll uh, do our level best to uh, incorporate your thinking and or get back to you as soon as possible. And I think the last thing uh, I should say, uh, uh, in addition to uh, welcoming you to find this information on our webpage, because we will post uh, the uh, call on our webpage uh, within just a day or two, Last thing I should say is um, a reminder that um, this is undoubtedly hard on all of us. That being said, uh, many of us are fortunate uh, to be uh, somewhat insulated, frankly, and uh, relatively comfortable. Uh, and if so, uh, obviously uh, give thanks for that. Uh, but if not, if you're someone who is uh, struggling, who has problems, uh, please do reach out. There is help out there available from a number of resources, uh, not always easy to access, uh, but my office and I uh, and uh, local nonprofits throughout the county uh, are, uh, and certainly the folks at uh, the County of Santa Clara are all doing their level best to be helpful. So uh, for those of us who have good reason to be thankful, notwithstanding the uh, virus, uh, thanks, of course. For those who need help, please ask. And uh, finally, if you're in a position to give help, please do. Please be one of those people who steps up and shows our best side during this difficult time. Uh, I have been so impressed uh, by the literally uh, hundreds of thousands of folks throughout the county who are uh, doing their level best to be um, a help in a difficult time. Thanks so much. We will have yet another telephone town hall identified. And for now, I'm going to say uh, keep yourself safe, keep yourself well, and uh, we look forward to joining you again. Take care.